This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. From our Providence, Rhode Island studios, I sit down with Rhode Island House Minority Leader Blake Philippi. Republican Blake Philippi is the recently elected Rhode Island House Minority Leader, leading a caucus that has less than 15% of House membership in an overwhelmingly democratically controlled lower chamber. Following an election cycle that saw Rhode Island Republicans fail to mount any serious challenges for statewide office, and with a national Republican brand soured by the antics of President Donald Trump, I checked in with Representative Filippi, an attorney and organic cattle farmer who represents Block Island and portions of South County, to gain an understanding of who the Rhode Island Republican Party is and where it might be headed. Does he believe the party can appeal to a large swath of Rhode Island voters that may be seeking to preserve some of their socially liberal values, but also have a desire for fiscal restraint or increased opposition and debate within state government? And as minority leader, how will his own socially liberal and fiscally conservative viewpoints impact his decision-making process and the coalitions he seeks to establish in the House with fellow Republicans, traditional Democrats, and also progressive Democrats, who recently established themselves as the Reform Caucus. If you're in the Providence metro area, be sure to pick up a copy of the December issue of Providence Monthly Magazine for a feature on the Bartholomew Town podcast. You may also find it on my Twitter handle, at Bill Bartholomew, or search for the Bartholomew Town podcast Facebook group, where I've posted a scan of the article. Many thanks to Providence Monthly for reaching out. It was very fun to have you over here at the loft for a switcheroo with me serving as the subject for a change. All right, let's get right to it. My conversation with Rhode Island House Minority Leader Blake Filippi. First, I asked him about repairing some of the divisions that were apparent within the Rhode Island Republican Party during this last election cycle, from the defections of Joe Trillo and former Minority Leader Patricia Morgan to some Republicans shying away from or backing off entirely from initial support for President Trump. So I think when you look at the divisions you just spoke about, I think the divisions are, are, are less than actually in the Democratic Party. Because the divisions which you're talking about were more personal divisions. Uh, I think between Joe Trillo and Alan Fung, they, I think, had more personal animosity, frankly, much more from Joe Trillo than Alan Fung. I think within the Democratic Party, you see deep ideological divisions, which I think are much harder to heal. Uh, within the Republican Party now, I, I don't think it's divided. I think most of us align on being fiscally conservative, and we definitely do differ on social issues, but it's not something where we beat each other up over. Um, many of us, like myself, are, have you know, liberal drug views, for instance. Uh, legalization of marijuana is something I'm all for, and other people in the party don't want that, but we don't see each other as enemies because we have these differing social views. I think the core of Rhode Island conservatism, if you will, is we want to lower your taxes, we want to make things more business-friendly. And I think that unites us um, and basically overshadows any other small divisions we have. Uh, with Joe Trillo and Patricia Morgan now, frankly, out of the party in many respects, I'm not going, I don't see going forward these deep ideological, not ideological divisions, but divisions, period. And hopefully the party can reunify and, and move forward and convince Rhode Islanders that really, if you vote Republicans in, 
your life's really not going to change, but you're probably going to save a bunch of money. Right. That's that's definitely the selling point that you think to yesteryear, the chafy, you know, sort of brand of republicanism, if you will. Um, and it seems like Bob Flanders kind of played that card a little bit as well in taking on Senator Whitehouse that, you know, he's not the Trumpian Republican. He's he's a bipartisan workman, if you will, of what if he were to be in the Senate, uh, if he were elected, he would be a workman within the Senate. Yeah. Um, is that the formula you see? the party needs to take if it as new leadership takes place as chairman bell his term expires um and and things move forward is that the should that be front and center if you will in the republican agenda i think so i think there's many things the party has to do to to make a, a better effort in 2020 uh one of the concerns i have is that the party focuses many times on statewide candidates when really the party should be focusing on getting general assembly members elected and by getting more General Assembly elect members elected, we're going to increase the chances two elections, three elections down the road of electing uh, statewide candidates. Uh, in terms of philosophy and ideological perspective, the libertarian John Chafee, um, fiscally conservative, socially cool model, I think is the way to go. I think it sells in Rhode Island. I don't think the Southern Republican mindset, although there's a place for it in the party, I don't think that's going to be winning any re- elections in the state of Rhode Island. Uh, I don't think that the, the Trumpian model of scorched earth politics works here. I don't think it works on either side. And I think we need to be cognizant of that and, and kind of reject the, the politics of personality um, as opposed to supporting people. We need to support issues. And there's no perfect candidate, but there's sometimes perfect ideas. And I think that's what we need to focus on is a philosophy and a message, uh, not the politics of personality. Right. And it's how do you win back independent voters? And obviously you did as a party, extremely well in situate, you know, I think even Cordelesa and Riley crushed their opponents in those <laughs> areas or in that area, you know, but how realistically that's not, that's not going to sell in Charlestown by and large, you've, you certainly, um, you were unchallenged, but I believe for a reason, you know, you've established yourself as, you know, aligned as someone who grew up in Charlestown, you seem to, to to speak the language, if you will, of the Charlestown Block Island block, if you will. Yeah, and, and I don't want to sit here and say that the 2018 election was a complete rout, because when you look at the numbers, I think Alan Fung got something along the lines of 30,000 more votes than he did four years ago. But what happened is that the, the Democratic turnout machine was just on, and Gina Raimondo, she ran one hell of a campaign, and she brought in thousands and thousands and thousands of more people to vote. And and that's, I think, why there was kind of a rout among Republicans is because they voted Democratic down ballot. Uh, but Alan Fung got more votes than he did four years ago. Right. And arguably ran a, you know, a campaign that didn't reach as many swing voters as he did in 2014 or appeal to as many swing voters. It seemed like the late start, if you will, the delay in not being very out in front with the media, certainly the primary situation it it didn't give him a chance to appeal to you know somebody who is not really even involved in politics but is truly just voting on character you know it seemed like he didn't have the same oomph in that area and you wonder if that could have put him closer if not over the top if he had been able to play the human element a little bit more yeah you it's always interesting to look back at campaigns and and almost deconstruct them and i and i think you're right i think that if he had been out earlier had debated patricia morgan he probably would have done better 
Um, and I also think the Joe, Joe Trillo factor was something no one anticipated that he would turn into a bull in a china shop that frankly just turned the election into a circus and was attacking Alan Funk so much that I don't think Alan Funk could get out there and really spread his message because he was defending himself from his right flank the entire time. I think Joe Trillo really hurt Alan Fung and kind of deprived the people of the state of a election based on policy, which I, which I think what we need to have is policy debates. And with Joe Trillo in the race, it turned in just to like a sideshow attack, just kind of a really sad, pathetic way for a gubernatorial campaign to be run. Yeah. And ultimately, of course, just getting what I believe was a humiliating 4% of the vote. And of course, the Fung campaign, there's no way that they thought it would only be 4% based on the amount of attention that they had to pay to Trillo. You know, it's, they certainly didn't pay that much attention to Bill Gilbert or Dr. Munoz. <laughs> but it was also because Dr. Munoz and Bill Gilbert weren't like smashing the guy in his back, yeah. saying horrible insults, calling him a pansy, just just childish garbage. Uh and I think Alan Fung was was kind of innocent in that regard. But when someone attacks you, you have to expend resources defending yourself. And unfortunately, he was put in that position where he couldn't focus on Gina Raimondo and the many problems which she which she has headed over in the state. Uh, and I, I I just feel people were deprived of that debate, which they needed to make the right choice. Yeah, I was surprised. I I interviewed Joe Trello and maybe March or April, actually, at his office, and 50% of the interview is just him calling Alan Fung a mamby-pamby, you know, Daffy Duck could have been mayor, and they still would have had Sakanas <laughs> at Crossroads, it went on and on, so it was, you're thinking, wow, you're, you're trying to build name recognition for a state, the highest statewide office, and this is where you're focused, I didn't think it was going to go much further than maybe what it did, but... But maybe, maybe that was maybe that was the intent. Uh, you know, I think when you look at the final two months of the campaign, Joe Trill, if he even wanted to compete, he had to tack to the middle and try and pick up de- Democratic votes. He had to pick up the independents. Instead, he brought on my friend Patricia Morgan as his surrogate, who is known as the anti-Democrat. I think that probably hurt his chances of winning, but helped his chances of making Alan Fung lose as well. So I, I really question what his motivations were absolutely um let's move on from the uh, the past and into the future here cool um specifically with balancing the national agenda of the gop with the local agenda um and in your role as minority leader what sort of coalitions do you want to build with obviously democrats but specifically with maybe progressives and as sort of just a broader anti-establishment coalition and what sort of very specifically GOP policies are you going to really try to enact in this legislative session? I think there's so much more that that libertarians and conservatives have in common with progressives that there's so much more we have in common that people even notice. Um, and, and when you're up there and you see who supports your bills, you realize that on issues of individual privacy, and I guess more I would say libertarians and progressives, on, on drug policy, on prison reform, on issues of privacy, police state, uh, going more national, uh, warfare, monetary policy, uh, corporate welfare. Uh, these are things that libertarians and many conservatives align right with progressives on. And, and I think it's important for us to speak about where, where we see um, things in common uh, in in the state on the state level uh, pr- 
privacy issues concerning uh, police access to our private data, uh, whether it's prescription data, whether it's uh, internet data. Uh, these are things where, which I've worked with my progressive friends to enact warrant requirements. Uh, drones are one thing. Stingray cell site simulators are other things that the police use to, to suck up our data without warrants. And these are, these are issues which I'm, I'm thrilled to have progressive allies with in, in the House. Um, corporate welfare is something which I think we all have a very big concern with. Um, uh, in the state of Rhode Island, I'm concerned that we've turned into an economy that is largely centrally planned because we've enacted policies which make it hard to, to have capital invested here and, and make it work. Um, out-of-state capital really doesn't come into Rhode Island unless it gets a, a commerce subsidy. And I think that there's a lot of progressives who are starting to see that this, this notion of corporate welfare is problematic. Uh, it really is not capitalism. It's corporatism. So I, I think that as a policymaker, I didn't realize that the, the left-right spectrum is really a farce, that really it's a three-dimensional cube and people fall somewhere within that. And there's so many alliances on different policies that you really don't expect uh, which I think we need to foment more. We need to we need to realize that we have these similar similarities and really work to pass good policy. Uh, party be damned. Yeah, I completely agree. It's like I almost think of it as a sphere or something like that. It's it's the left right spectrum, the way of you know the the pendulum that you learn about in tenth grade history or whatever it is. That's just sort of a mechanic for a political scientist to evaluate moods of the country. You know that that doesn't really define the human condition totally (laughs) and also it's like i think a way to to foment division uh because okay say say i'm i'm kind of a libertarian so i'm far off on the right and you have progressives that are far off on the left and like how the hell can you two either even get together but you realize there's so much we can work together on that 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 linear spectrum is just it's it's so pedestrianly foolish it just like really doesn't represent the way things are, and I just think it takes a very myopic view of, like you said, the human condition and like beliefs. Yeah, and you go back to some of the historically within the Rhode Island State House, some of the parties that came out of the Law and Order Party. You know, these parties that were just had very specific goals in the eighteen hundreds, the Post Door Rebellion. You know, those were specific goals that people went in to try to organized government and now a lot of the goals seem extremely broad you know the 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 goals are very long term and on both sides and you wonder who's going to take the lead on a specific issue of strengthening Rhode Island's position as an economic driver or improving morale amongst Rhode Islanders which is something I think a lot of people feel this state for some reason it's just kind of like eh around here you know voter turnout was all right but it wasn't you'd like to see it go above 50 percent And you wonder if the General Assembly can enact policies that make people really believe and buy into the state again. That's a great question. I think we do have a civic pride lacking. I remember in the late 90s and early 2000s, I remember there was a sense of of real pride in this state. And it's kind of sad to, to not see that anymore. And I think whether that drives policy or policy has driven it, I think that we need to do a better job as a state realizing what a wonderful place we are. And maybe once we do that, we wouldn't accept policies and we wouldn't accept politicians that maybe put the interests of special interests before the people. Uh, I kind of – I don't know if it's a chicken or egg syndrome, but I don't see how you can have 
a, like a lack of civic pride. I mean, let me strike that. I think that a lack of civic, civic pride kind of lines up with a political system that doesn't work uh, because where you have a lot of civic pride, people wouldn't stand for a political system that doesn't serve them. Right. It just backfires. People don't feel involved. And it's almost like, all right, that's those guys. They, they run things. It's almost like their private business. I'll just not really pay attention. Yeah. And that's how we end up in a lot of the jams, I think, that we're in. Yeah. So I love the state. I think it really does have incredible opportunity. We're between Boston and New York. Um, we're small. We can change fast. I think there's a lot of opportunity if we make the right decisions in the next 10 years to really come out in a spot that we can all be proud of. A specific issue that came up, it's been a while now, but it was related to the Federal Railroad Administration. They wanted to reroute the railroad uh, through Charlestown. This would take out some farmland and, you know, it would disturb the the woodlands, if you will, for in a momentary sense. But the larger question that, that struck me was um, in related to the land trust and the possibility that the FRA could go right through this land trust in Charlestown um, without, you know, they could claim eminent domain essentially within these land trusts. That's a huge part of Charlestown, Westerly, South Kingstown, the whole region, land trusts. And what's your message on that issue? And, and just sort of, have you, have you thought about that at all on a state level? Obviously it's a federal issue, but land trusts and preserving open space in South County long-term, what's your message on that? How should people go about it? Well, okay, so there's a lot there. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll start at the end. Uh, our environment isn't just a social treasure. It's an economic treasure. And we need to do everything we can to preserve it. One of our biggest industries is tourism. You start taking away our pr- protected space. You start drilling off the coast. Our goose that has laid the golden egg may go away. And that's a problem. We need to do everything we can to preserve Rhode Island as a beautiful place it is. Not just because... It's a great place to live, but we make a lot of money off of it. Um, the FRA was a big problem. Uh, many of us state policymakers came together. We worked with the governor's office, Senator Reid's office, White House, Cicilline, and Langevin, and we all pushed very hard against the FRA's proposal, and we showed the absurdity of it. Uh, I think just the portion going through Schmuckinuck Hill in Charlestown would have yes. cost – would have cre- you needed a billion-dollar tunnel, and because – when a train goes through a tunnel, it has to slow down because of wind blasts. I think it would have saved about a, mil- uh, a minute. I don't remember. I haven't looked at this about a year and a half. It would have saved about a minute in time and cost a billion dollars, taken numerous farms, people's homes, and there were better ways to do that. I mean, you can build high-speed trains on existing tracks if you have lean technology. Uh, not lean as in skinny, but lean as in degrees. It could tilt the train could tilt and stay at these high rates of speed uh is there a need for high high speed rail of course there is but you know it has to be done in a way that the the burdens don't outweigh the benefit and i think going through charlestown the schmuckinuck hill area straightening that track that would have created so many problems that didn't justify the benefit we would have gotten out of it because the train would have to slow down to go through schmuckinuck hill um in other areas eminent domain is in many cases, a necessary tool. I really don't like it, uh, but I think one of the core eminent domain functions is for public use, public transportation, highways, trains, um, but we just have to be smart about the way we do it. Where eminent domain should never be used is economic development, taking people's private homes to give it to private ent- entities uh, like was done in uh, New London. You know, The Kilo v. New London decision, the United States Supreme Court said that economic development is a public use under the Fifth Amendment. I thought that was a perverted decision. 
Uh, so that, that, that's my answer. We need to preserve land trusts. I think that was one of the, the questions you would ask. Absolutely. And I'm going to look into that New London issue. That's interesting. So you're yeah. an attorney. You're a cattle farmer. You have, obviously, you're up there on Smith Hill. You have a balanced perspective on a lot of these issues, I suppose. What do you say is the thing that you know guides your decision-making more than anything else, whether it's vocational or personal? I think that kind of what I view is like the neoclassical role of government and the, the idea that this country was founded on was that we were all born free. Um, you know, you have like the, in, in Europe, they had the divine right of kings that the, the king was essentially uh, given the power to rule by God. And the United States, we essentially said that we were all basically kings of our own lives and we come together to form government to actually maximize our freedom, to create more freedom. And, and I truly believe that. Uh, but I think our founders also warned us that there becomes a point where government gets too big and the larger it gets, it starts to take away our freedom. So in, the, in, in its inception, you have a government providing court systems, protection, roads, transportation, uh, common monetary systems. These are, are things that as in government's infancy that it does that actually maximize and grow our freedom. And it's almost like an inverse bell curve. There comes a point where as in the beginning government grows, we get more freedom, but it starts to, as it grows more, take away our freedom. And so I kind of bring that to my view of government, that government is, has a necessary role, but it can also be an evil that we need to constrain. And I think government ultimately, when you look at it from that philosophy, government's ultimate role is to maximize liberty. And if you look at government through that perspective, I think that many of the policy debates we look at are, are easy calls. Yeah, and that really is classical thinking, whether you're talking about even anarchy at it, you know, or syndicalist sort of ideals. It's the same principle. What is what's necessary and what's not, you know. So you would would you classify yourself as someone who's anti toll or or anti barrier? Do you feel like those impediments are necessary sacrifices that we sometimes have to make? No, I don't. I, I think that tolls on certain certain things like bridges to maintain the bridge. Um, yeah. This. The statewide tolling network that we established in Rhode Island, the tolls aren't set up to maintain that the individual bridge that is tolled. It's basically a way to fund statewide improvements even on non-tolled roads. Um, we do have a constitutional right under the federal constitution to have interstate commerce, to move freely. We are considered commerce when we move across state lines, and that can't be restricted. I don't think tolls are unconstitutional, but I think – there is this right of free movement, and I think we need to be very careful anytime we restrict that, whether that's through impeding our free movement, um, through making it difficult to cross state lines, uh, and taxing us, essentially tolls or taxes, uh, for freely moving. And I think there were ways to reorganize our state budget where we didn't need to do this. And I think just strictly from an economic perspective where it's not going to work out the way it was. I think their truck counts are, are off, and I also think that we get a lot of money – uh, I think through the IFTA fuel tax, where all commercial trucks basically have a counter that says how many miles you've done in the state of Rhode Island. Even if you didn't get gas in the state of Rhode Island, Rhode Island gets a portion of that fuel tax. And the uh, I think you might have trucks avoiding Rhode Island to not only to avoid our tolls, but then at that point we're going to not be getting our IFTA fuel tax. And lastly, I also think that 
the toll law is unconstitutional because I feel that it shifts the infrastructure repair burden onto interstate commerce by only taxing 18 wheelers, which predominantly operate in interstate commerce. And also there's another reason it's unconstitutional. I won't get into the weeds, but it has to do with the the daily caps. Um, Right. The $40 a day cap. So you could essentially go up and down the state 500 times, you know, well, do the math. I don't know if you could do it 500, but probably 50 times or whatever. And be taxed the same as someone who goes up and down once. Exactly, exactly. So, all right, then let's get into it. So, you can have someone who largely operates in intrastate commerce in the state of Rhode Island, could drive an 18 wheeler, and they could go under, let's say, 50 tolls in a day, and they're not going to be more than $40. But then you could have someone who does interstate commerce who's going from Connecticut to Boston back, and they could maybe only go under 10 tolls. And they could be paying the same $40 per day as someone who went under 50 tolls. And that could be seen as another subsidy of interstate commerce onto intrastate commerce. And courts disfavor uh, burdening interstate commerce. And I think the courts, are the way they're going to look at this is they're going to say, what if every state did this? What if every state tried to shift its infrastructure repair burden onto interstate commerce? We'd have a horrible system and we would slow interstate commerce. And that's actually very harmful to the country to not have this free flow of commerce among the states. So I, I think I think there's the, there's a very very credible challenge in federal court to the roadworks program, and I believe it's ongoing right now. Yeah, I wonder how far out that will go. I've always wondered. And I think there was a, a court challenge at one point, but Easy Pass cost differentials based on the origin of that Easy Pass, the origin the state that you got that Easy Pass, and if you have a New York Easy Pass and you go over the bridge, the Newport Bridge, you're going to be told four dollars versus eighty three cents or whatever it is. If that's a Rhode Island inter easy pass and where that fits in into interstate commerce as well you know that that transaction does that somehow fit into this entire picture totally i i I think that actually helps the state's argument in this court case where they've said that's okay um but i think we're going to look at it differently with actually the the shipment of goods versus the movement of people i think that's how they're going to have to distinguish it the the trucking association is half going to have to distinguish it um, because courts have actually said that the movement of people is essentially the same as the movement of goods. It has to be free. So right. Not free as in cost-free, but like freely um, encouraged. Like You can't restrict people and burden them too much Excuse me, in the free movement across state lines. Right. So I don't know how it's going to shake out, but my fear is that if they say it's unconstitutional, the remedy isn't going to be where we take down this $50 million tolling network, which we've installed. The remedy is going to be to expand the classes of those tolled possibly onto our passenger cars. And that has always been the ultimate fear. That's right. And hopefully you'll see the gantries come out and sold to some, the highest bidder before that happens. You know, I mean, as somebody who drives around the state, come on, let's get real. Yeah. If they got, if they have to be taken down, let's, let's take them down and sell them, not expand the tolling program. Last question is, uh, with your block Island pedigree, um, the wind turbines, there's the first time I saw them when it came, I've seen them in construction from, uh, Galilee, you know, so I knew that what was happening. I'd see the red lights and see the workers come back on the boats at night. Sometimes they'd go down and play at a venue down there. I'd come in from New York. But the first time I took the ferry after they were finished uh, and made made the turn in into the harbor and just saw them there, it really struck me. And I had truly had no opinion. I couldn't decide if I was horrified or amazed. I still am not sure when I see some of the marine life and bird life complaints and so on and so forth, but also as 
you know, it's definitely a cleaner way to power Block Island than what they were doing out there before, what you were doing out there before. Where, where does wind, especially in the context of in the ocean, where does that sit in terms of your vision for Rhode Island going forward? Hopefully over the horizon. Yeah. And not in terms of, not temporally, but actually spatially. Uh, I, I, I like deep water winds, a new proposal to have a, a industrial scale wind farm over the horizon. Um, on the wind farms off Block Island, we took the, the most pristine, beautiful, natural place and put five wind turbines there. And for that reason, I was opposed to it. But I got to tell you, you almost stop seeing them after a while. They almost become like telephone wires. You just kind of block them out. Um, I think it's good that the technology was proved. I think it's good that it's starting here in Rhode Island. But in terms of where they are, I just think we need to be careful about our view sheds because they are important and you just can't put these things everywhere uh, in the name of, of green energy. I think we have to be diligent and smart about how we place these. Yeah, I agree. It was a profound moment for me. I was on the island playing at a music festival. We went down to the bluffs, the Mohegan Bluffs, and I just walked away from everybody and just stood there. And this, this was a massive like existential crisis about the clash of totally where we're going. I mean, this applies to robotics <laughs> and everything else. And it just kind of all hit me. And it was just a powerful moment, really, to think about it. Um, and I wonder how far that goes. I mean, they, they are massive. If people, you know, your listeners know the Southeast Lighthouse on Block Island, the big brick one on the cliffs, yep. the, the, the top of the wind turbine is twice as high as the top of that lighthouse. Um, they, if you ever go out on a boat, you'll just be amazed at how big they are. And, and lastly, with wind, I just think we need to be cognizant that we have some of the highest electricity prices now in this state and the country. And as we go forward with this, I think we need to be need to be careful that we're not raising rates too much because it's one of those things that industrial um, businesses look at when they're thinking about where to move is, is power price. And we just need to be very careful about keeping our prices low here. And, and right now, wind power is still higher than conventional power. Interesting insight. Um, parting words here to the listeners out there who are, when they hear the word Republican, because some of them have said, why do you have X, Y, and Z on the show? They're, you know, of the party of, of Trump. They, they, you know, they, they, the anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric, things of this nature. What's your message to Rhode Islanders about the importance of a bipartisan system for one in this state, but also the broader message that the GOP can offer to people um, and that are not just MAGA hat, um, <laughs> you know, cross burning, hateful people, essentially. I think the message about the Republicans in this state are that largely we're fiscally conservative and socially cool. We really don't care what you do with your private life. Um, I don't care who. What goes on? What I always say is like, I want to keep government out of your wallet, body, and home. Um, in terms of the, the net necessity of a balance, you can't have a legislative system where 85% of the seats are controlled by one party, and that's what we have in the state. And many of the problems that we have are because we don't have balance in our legislator, legislature. Uh, take a look at Republicans. Don't think that we're the national party, we're the state party, and we do have a lot of different views. Um, for instance, you mentioned immigration. I was one of the sponsors of the bill to give dreamers driver's licenses. So we're, we're not the MAGA hat wearing, I think you said cross burning. I don't know if I agree with <laughs> No, I know what you that. mean. I know so, what you mean. Yeah, yeah, some jerk that, in Mississippi may burn a cross. Right, like, right, right. Um, that, that's not us. And largely it's not, it's not Republicans. And I think many time our national media misleads the American people 
And I just think we always need to look critically upon those who are purporting to give us objective information. It's always a pleasure to speak with you here on the Bartholomew Town Podcast. And you may find each of my in-depth conversations with Rhode Island political figures, media members, artists, and beyond on Apple Podcasts or BartholomewTown.com. Until next time, we'll talk soon.